Almost 60 years ago, it's hard to believe. Beverly and I watched this movie. Some of you did. Some of you weren't even thought of back then. The words were by Joe Darian, and the music was by Mitch Lee. You probably know the word, words well. To dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chase from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest that my heart will be peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. And the world will be better for this. And one man, sore and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage to fight the unbeatable foe and to reach the unreachable star. We prayed about anxieties this morning, but we also prayed about aspirations. And in difficult times, sometimes we become discouraged, not just times of pandemic, not just times of difficulty for the whole nation, but when we face our own individual problems and anxieties and difficulties. And sometimes our aspirations are crushed. Sometimes our expectations are not met. Sometimes we become so discouraged. And the solution to that is what we have been looking at for the last couple of weeks, God's love. Paul was in a very difficult situation, as you know, when he wrote the book of Ephesians. Most of you know that he, like the man of La Mancha, was in a prison, dark and dank, probably about 62 to 64 AD. He had been in Ephesus about six to eight years before and had ministered there and built on the ministry of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquilus for about two years. He had lectured in the and taught in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And then he had left and gone back to Jerusalem. And he is now in prison. The reasons for this message are pretty clear. He is revealing the mystery of Christ. He is promoting the uni unity of the church, that is, Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ. He is teaching new converts how to live as Christ's followers. And he's encouraging them Whatever may come, what suffering they may endure like he is, not to lose heart, but to persevere even in the face of tribulation, which is bound to come. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he reminds them that he is experiencing that tribulation, that suffering. Many of his aspirations are not being met. They are being crushed. They are being extinguished. And yet, he tells them not to be discouraged. He says, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations because you see they're on your behalf and they are for your glory. Later, we know in this letter near the end, he warns them that they are going to be engaged in a warfare that is spiritual and to put on the armor of God. So there are problems that are on the horizon. And in this passage today, I think he encourages them, even those that sometimes feel crushed. 
in difficult times. He encourages them in their insecurity. He encourages them in their uncertainty. He encourages them in their sense of unfulfillment. And those are three things that I think that affect all of us, especially at this time with a pandemic. Sometimes we feel insecure, sometimes we feel uncertain, and sometimes we feel like our dreams and our aspirations are not being fulfilled. Let's stand together as we read together God's word from Ephesians, the third chapter, beginning in verse number 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with a power through his spirit in the inner person, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And God's people said, Amen. Let's be seated. The context of this passage is pretty clear. Paul has revealed two mysteries to the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1, he has revealed the mystery of the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, salvation after the forgiveness of sins that is according to the riches of God's grace. That pretty much is a summary of chapter 1. And then he talks about the unity of the church in chapter 2 and how important that is now that the Gentiles have come into the church and maintaining that unity. And because of that, then he further explains another mystery in chapter 3. A mystery that has been hidden for the ages, but now has been revealed through the apostles and the prophets. That salvation is available, yes, even to the Gentiles. Salvation is available to everyone, not just to the Jew alone. And then he talks in chapter 3 after that about the privilege that he has of sharing this message. Not just the other apostles and not just the prophets, but he, Paul, who is the least of all the saints has been given the privilege to reveal this message and to make known the grace of Jesus Christ in verse 10. And then he talks about the nature of God's mysterious promise. You see, it's sufficient for everyone. You see, it's based on Christ's unfathomable riches. They are limitless. There's enough grace through Christ for God to save everyone. He talks about that promise being secured forever by Christ because it is not just something that God did as an afterthought. It is according to his eternal purpose. Before the foundation of the world, this was his plan in verse number 11. And then he seeks to instill confidence in them so that they boldly and confidently can have access by faith in Christ in verse number 12. And that's when we come to that verse number 13 that we read where he encourages them not to be discouraged even in the midst of the tribulation that he has experienced because it will be for their glory. And I think in there is also the hint that they may be facing that kind of tribulation themselves. So today's passage, I'd like to talk about two things. First of all, the beginning of this passage, I think that we see that there is a stewardship of God's grace. Paul is a steward of God's grace and we too are stewards. Just as 
God said to Adam, and he made him a steward of his creation. You have the privilege of being a steward of God's grace. We're privileged to share the eternal mystery of salvation, his redemptive act through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to save not just some, not just a select few, not just one nation, but all the families of the earth then have this opportunity. We, as the stewards of God's grace, are like Peter. It's misunderstood by a lot of pe people when he says, Blessed are thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, but thy Father who is in heaven. And then he says what? I'm going to give you what? The keys. The keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We have a responsibility as the stewards of God's grace to do just that. By sharing the gospel and praying for people to accept it, we then turn the key that opens the door of salvation. And if we do not, we are binders. We have such a privilege and a responsibility. And it goes beyond just seeing conversion. Then we have the responsibility to disciple those converts, to pray for God to strengthen them, for them to grow strong, even in troubling times like now, when they experience insecurity, and uncertainty and a sense of lack of fulfillment. But we're assured, as Paul was, that they will be strengthened. Not strengthened because of our power, not strengthened because we are so bright and brilliant and because we're such great stewards, but they will be strengthened because we are drawing from the riches of God's glory, the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ to meet any need. And then secondly, the bulk of this passage deals with God strengthening us in difficult times. So this is what Paul prays for. He prays that they be strengthened. He prayed then that we would be strengthened and we pray for other followers of Christ to be strengthened as well. And God provides everything, Paul says here, that's necessary for that. He provides the means in verse number 16. The means is his power. He provides the source in verse number 17. And the source is the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. He provides not only the means and the source, but then he provides the ways that they need to be strengthened. The remedies in verses 18 and 19. The remedy for insecurity. And many people feel that today. We think that if we get vaccinated, we're protected. Well, largely we are, but it's not 100% guaranteed. Insecurity. Uncertainty and doubt. And finally, lack of fulfillment. The means is his power, the Holy Spirit. Strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit, we know this, we're told in Romans the 8th chapter. When we are adopted, when we believe in Jesus Christ, and we become followers of our Savior, the Son of God, we're adopted into the family of God. And from the moment of our adoption, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as a seal and a sign that we are His. And it bears witness to us that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Jesus promised His disciples, not only would they receive the Holy Spirit, but He said, you stay in Jerusalem until what? Not just the Spirit comes upon you, but the power of the Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses. So He is the Spirit also of power. He is a spirit not of fear. He tells Timothy, for you have not been given the spirit of fear, but you've been given the spirit of what? Power and love and self-discipline. 
We have this spirit because Paul later tells us in Ephesians, you're going to need that. You need to put on the spiritual armor because you're engaged in a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but it is against spiritual forces in high places. And so, first of all, he gives us then the means of meeting these three challenges, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us the source. He gives us the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, which is a consequent state of being with Christ dwelling in us. You see the indwelling of Christ. This is about the permanent dwelling of Christ. There are several words that speak about dwelling. One is meno. It means to abide. It means to stay. It means to stay in place. There's another word that's very similar to the word that is used here. But it doesn't mean exactly what this word indwelling means. It means to live in the neighborhood of, to be a sojourner, to be a visitor, to be there temporarily. Cleopas, when he's on the road then to Emmaus and he is standing before Jesus, he looks at him and he says, what's wrong with you? Because Jesus apparently doesn't know about what's happened in Jerusalem. He says, are you a stranger to Jerusalem? He uses that verb here. Abraham was a stranger who sojourned temporarily in the land of promise. That's not the word that's used here. The word that is used here is a word that means to be settled, to inhabit, to permanently inhabit the house. We are the temple of God. And he permanently inhabits that temple. And he secures that house, the dwelling place. He is the foundation. He is the builder of the eternal home. He is also the builder of the temple that we inhabit, the physical temple, this, this, this body that we have, and we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. And then he builds a spiritual house. The church is his spiritual house where the priesthood of believers come together and he builds that spiritual house. And both the individual temple and the spiritual house of God, the church, you see, are secured upon this foundation of his love, his agape love. The foundation of the house then is in Christ's love. You see, we're, we're rooted. Literally means that we're strengthened by the deep roots of God's love. In Colossians, the second chapter, it says that we are to be rooted and built in Him, and therefore we are established firmly in our faith. We're grounded by Christ's love. He gives us a stable foundation. When Jesus talks about the two houses, the one that's on the rock and the one that's on the sand, we know what happens to the one on the sand. When the wind and the, the waves and the, and the rain come and blow, that house falls. But the one that is settled, the one that is grounded, and that is the word that is used here, on the rock stands fast. In Colossians, Paul uses this same word for being grounded by saying that we're to continue in our faith so that we will be grounded and settled, unmoved from the hope of the gospel. Peter tells us that after you suffer for a little while, after you go through tribulation, after you face difficulties and lost aspirations and expectations, when you work through the uncertainty and the insecurity and the doubts and Christ's love is still there, you will be unmoved. You will be strengthened. You will be grounded. So the source, you see, of this power is the love of Christ. And then he gives three remedies, 
Three remedies to face these challenges. In insecure times, uncertainty that engenders doubt, and sometimes a lack of fulfillment. Take a look at the first one, our insecurities in verse number 18. That we may be able, having been strengthened, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. What's he talking about there? Well, the problem is I think he's dealing with insecurity. Sometimes in difficult times, even the strongest Christ follower begins to feel insecure. The footing seems to be shifting. The tectonic plates in our life sometimes seem to be giving way when we discover that a family member has cancer or when we are awaiting the results of a test and the doctor has told us it's probably not going to be very good. You see then the tectonic plates begin to shift. We feel insecure. So what is the object here? What are we to comprehend here? I think he's talking about verse number 16. That we may comprehend, that is, the riches of his glory. That are realized, in verse number 8, in the unfathomable riches of Christ. We need to be reminded the source of our strength. And the personal realization of that first mystery that Paul has explained in chapter 1. That we have a redemption that is secure in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is permanent. It is secure. So we need to comprehend that. But this goes beyond thinking. This isn't comprehension just of the mind. It's not just thinking. It's not just contemplating. It's not just understanding. It goes beyond that. Paul uses a verb here which means that you might seize it. That you might make it your own possession. So these riches of God's glory, the unfathomable riches of Christ, the promise of your eternal redemption, you see, we are to seize and to have secure. You see, God wants us to claim that security. He wants us to claim the promise that he has given us. Now, the problem is that's not within our power to do by ourselves. He enables us to do it. You see, the power to grasp this and to be secure, the power to grasp the security of eternal salvation, the power to grasp the certainty that God stands with us in every difficulty and trial and tribulation, that is not within our power. You see, we're weak, we're infirm. We are frail vessels of dust. It doesn't originate with us. You see, it originates in Christ himself. He who dwells in us in his love, Philippians, the third chapter, Paul says this. He says, I press on that I may grasp that for which I was also grasped by Christ Jesus. You see, as we seek to grasp for security, we need to be reminded that we have already been grabbed hold of. We've been grasped by Christ. He has possessed us. And we then have the ability to grasp that security. You see, in that passage in Philippians, it speaks about Christ already having grasped us. And if we're in his grasp, we're secure. And it enables us day by day by day to grasp not just mentally, but experientially, that he keeps us secure. What are, what are these aspects of God's riches that are promised? These boundless height, depth, breadth, and, and, and length promises. Well, Job reminds us, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits 
of the Almighty. This is what we're talking about, discovering those things. For Job, he says, they're high as the heavens. What, what can you do? Deeper than shale, what, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. We have the promise of Jesus Christ that we can begin to understand those things about God. The psalmist in Psalm 139 talks about the boundless nature of his presence. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you're there. If I take wings to the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. These are parts of the riches of God's glory. To know the boundless nature of his presence. The measurelessness of his love. Stuart Townsend's hymn, which we frequently sing here. How deep the Father's love for us, vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make me a wretch his treasure. The measurelessness of God's love, the richness of it, the surpassing greatness of the inheritance that he has given us. Paul talks about this in the first chapter. He prays that our eyes, the eyes of our heart, will be enlightened, that they will be opened, that we may know what is the hope of our calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. We, friends, can be secure in those things because of the love of Christ that dwells in us. What about the uncertainty that we experience? In verse number 19, the beginning, he says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. There are a couple of questions that come to my mind when I look at that verse. If Christ dwells in me, then why is it necessary for me to pray to know the love of Christ? If Christ dwells in you, why should I pray that you should know the love of Christ? And then what does it mean for that love to surpass knowledge? Well, here's the problem, I think. The problem is uncertainty about the love of Christ. What? Are even believers uncertain about that? Not uncertain that it exists, but uncertain about what it can do. Why should we pray to know the love of Christ? You see, when we're saved, we do what? We die to self. And Christ and his love come to dwell in us and we become God's children. And you know what Galatians says about that. At that moment, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Fine. And then the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Fine. The question is, do we continue to grow in Christ? If we grow in Christ, that love of Christ grows in us and that love strengthens us, as we've already seen, makes us more secure. The problem is we don't continue to die to self daily. And we know this. We falter, we stumble, we sin, and sometimes we doubt. And when we do that, it engenders doubt in our lives and it encourages sin. When we do not continue to die to self, what can remedy that? The victorious power of Christ's love needs to grow in us. And we need to ask the Lord to cause that love to grow. We need to petition the Lord for that love to grow, for us to be aware of that love in us. Knowing Christ is not just an intellectual exercise. Knowing Christ goes beyond that to experience. 
And if we don't let that love of Christ, if we don't come to know the love of Christ, what happens is our faith weakens and we begin to sin and we doubt. The key here is, what is he talking about knowing the love of Christ? You know what I'm going to say. You've heard me say it before. It's the word that means to know intimately. To be deeply acquainted with. Not just to perceive with the mind. It's not just an intellectual exercise. There's another verb for that. But that's not what he's saying here. It's gnosko. It's that intimate kind of knowledge through which we become deeply acquainted with another person. It's not just knowing by proximity. Well, Jesus is somewhere around. Jesus is somebody that I talk about when I come to Sunday school. Jesus is somebody that I was baptized in his name, but he has become more, no, no more than a name to me. It's not just proximity. There's another word that means native instinct. It's not just a native natural thing. It's quite unnatural. No, it's based on the kind of knowledge that is experiential. It is coming to know the love of Christ through prolonged practice. It is coming to know the love of Christ because we learn to love him. You see, we began to identify with him completely. Jesus called us. If anyone would come after me, let that person die to self, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul's goal was to know Christ. When he went to Corinth, he says, I was determined while I was with you to know nothing else, nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Philippians, Paul talks about this kind of knowledge, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and you know what's coming next, and the what? And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Knowing this love of Christ goes beyond all knowledge. It transcends human knowledge. It transcends the most intelligent knowledge that we have on earth. It exceeds the fullest knowledge that we have in science and philosophy. It defies skepticism that requires empirical proof for God's existence. It follows the super rationality of God. It's knowing the God who seems to be unknowable. It is beginning to grasp that which seems to be unreachable. After all, Isaiah tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But in the new covenant, we are promised by knowing the love of Christ that we can begin to discover those riches of God's glory. An uncommon love, a love not as the world knows it, a love that is unconditional, a love that loves us despite our sin, a love that is demonstrated by Christ dying for us while we were yet sinners. A love that endures. You heard it from Romans 8 this morning. We are certain that God's love that we experience through Jesus Christ. That nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not depth, not any of that long list of things that Paul expressed. It is a great love that the world does not understand. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, John says that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, you see, for this reason, this love of God, the world does not know us because you see it does not know him. It is an uncommon love that erases all doubt because we have experienced it. 
It's a hope that does not disappoint, Paul tells the Romans. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So God strengthens us against all insecurity. He strengthens us against all uncertainty and doubt through his love. And then finally, he then rolls back the sense of unfulfillment. In verse 19, he says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You see, there are some problems with the Don Quixote kind of aspiration of the knight who is tilting at windmills. I think it's wonderful that we try to aspire to do things that seem to be impossible. But the problem is, folks, we usually try to do those things in our own power. Often we live frustrated lives of unmet aspirations. Often we constantly drive to achieve things because not of God's expectations, and sometimes not just because of ours, but because of other people's expectations. Do you know what I'm talking about? Hmm. Sometimes we demand of ourselves worldly perfection, and if we do that, we are destined to disappointment. Sometimes we, hurt, we work hard to please God, doing things that he never expects or requires of us. You know what I'm talking about? The basic problem is what we're trying to do is we're trying to project an image of success, an image of fulfillment, an image of aspiration, which is basically founded on either hedonism or narcissism. And it's inconsistent with who we really are. God calls us to be humble servants, to be on our knees, and to serve him, and to follow him, and to die to self. The basic problem is we're often worried about the image, which is not the real self. We forget that we're created in whose image? God's image, the Imago Dei. And sometimes we forget that we as Christ's followers are being conformed to another image, and that is the image of his son Jesus Christ in his eternal glory. And Paul gives us a solution here. You see, that's sometimes why we feel so unfulfilled. Chasing dreams that are not God's plan for us. The solution is to be filled, to be filled, to be occupied, to be complete with the presence of God. To be, full, be filled with the fullness of God and the abundance of his presence. To be fully occupied by God himself and the power of his spirit and the presence of his son Jesus Christ in that love. You see, this isn't accomplished by the hard work that we do. It's not accomplished by struggling and striving to please. It is accomplished by his grace. Daily living, fulfilled in his presence, drawing from the riches of his glory and Christ's unfathomable riches. In other words, when Jesus says, be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect, he's saying, be filled with your father's presence through me and become who God created you to be. Be complete in Christ. You see, for him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we're given this promise that in him we will be made complete. The problem of lack of fulfillment is to become the person that God has called us to be. Not just individually. Let me close with this. Not just individually, friends, but corporately. He's calling each one of us to be filled with the fullness of God. And that solves the self-fulfillment problem. But he calls the church also to be filled with the fullness of God. 
the priesthood of all believers who come together to form the body of Christ and to build a spiritual house. You see, in the first chapter, it ends this way. And he put all things, that is God, put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who will fill all in all. I believe this, that the fullest expression of God's fullness on earth is found in the body of Christ, who is his church. That is you. Wow. What a promise. And if we believe that, then we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in his church. So let me close with a couple of applications. Friends, I believe it is a privilege for you and for me as stewards of God's grace to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost and dying people. It's also our, our responsibility when they come to know the Lord to pray that the Lord will strengthen them against insecurity, against uncertainty, and lack of fulfillment. But that only comes by our continuing to rely on the love of God through Jesus Christ drawing from his riches. And when all this happens, even in uncertain times, as we move forward as a church, I know we have questions about the future. Sammy and Paul are moving to Missouri. What's going to happen to the children's ministry? What's going to happen to the college ministry? I'll tell you what's going to happen. If we pray and we ask the Lord to provide, and if we are secure in his love, and we are certain about his provision from his riches of his grace, and if we aspire to be fulfilled by God's fullness, and not just project an image, but to abide by his will, he will provide. As we move into the future, if we let his love be the foundation we're rooted and grounded in, and if we stay united as the body of Christ, then we can claim that promise that we often turn to at the bottom of this passage that we usually don't look at the top part. And what is that promise? We are promised then that he will be able to do far beyond what we ask or think according to what? According to the power that works in us, the power of his Holy Spirit that works in us, and the love of Jesus Christ and the fullness of God will take us into the future without any doubt, without any uncertainty, without insecurity, and he will fulfill his purpose in us.